Good morning. We have spent these last uh, few months of summer in the Psalms, and we are drawing near to the end of book one, the first 41 Psalms. Uh, this grouping of Psalms of David reveals to us his personal understanding of God, of his promises, his provision, and his justice. And David's reliance on God at a personal level. And throughout this series, we've seen uh, David repeatedly cry out to God for help. He's worshiped him for his majesty. He's praised him for his deliverance. And we've seen him bring his troubles and anxiety and his lowest moments before God. And we caught David at just such a moment last week. Remember when we heard from Pastor Anthony, in fact, David has been lamenting before the Lord for the last two Psalms. From Psalms 38, he says, but for you, O Lord, I do wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. And then in Psalm 39, we saw last week a picture of his internal struggle as he dealt with his helplessness in waiting. And his only recourse was to wait upon the Lord. That's where we begin today in Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. 
Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Let's pray. Almighty God, what better words to say than the ones that we have just read? We put our trust in you. We seek you this morning because we are poor and needy. Open our ears to hear. Illumine our hearts and minds that we would better grasp the life that you are calling us to. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1, we see uh, from last week, all he could do was wait. I waited patiently for the Lord. In the Hebrew, it says, in waiting I waited, a double emphasis. I patiently waited. It's not a, not a passive process. Um, I was reading one of Spurgeon's sermons on this verse. And if you read a lot of Spurgeon, you know the guy can preach for an hour on one sentence. But uh, they say a picture is worth a thousand words, so maybe a physical acting out of what he intended is worth one Spurgeon sermon. But he says, we wait more like this. Are you going to do anything? That would be the antithesis of what we see from David, right? It's an active process. He's actively seeking God, his presence, while trusting and hoping for him in the answer. It's finding satisfaction in him instead of your circumstances. And David has been counseling the hearers of the Psalms, including himself, to wait upon the Lord several times up to this point, but none more so than in Psalm 27, where he ends the Psalm, if you remember back to when Aaron preached on this, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Now he writes those words at a point in his life when he's essentially an outlaw, on the run from King Saul, who constantly sought to take his life. He was trying to kill him. Okay? He's on the run, and while he's on the run, the Philistines all around, they want to kill him. The armies of Israel, under the command of Saul, they want to catch him and kill him. He even goes and saves a, a, a city from the Philistines, and God says, those people will turn you over to Saul if you stay there. 
He has no friends, no place to go. Everything around him is against him. And he writes those words. What God was so perfectly teaching him through all that was that the only thing that he needed was God. So in the midst of that, in the midst of that, David is pouring out all of his anxiety, his distress, his sorrow into the Psalms, while at the same time proclaiming the faithfulness and the steadfastness of God and his love. So now we see God answer the weight. He inclined to me and he heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. What did God save David from? We don't know exactly. But this vague kind of metaphor you remember what Anthony said last week, right? It's useful to us because I can apply it to my situation and you can apply it to your situation and we can both be right. Now, some have, have suggested that this point is the hinge between Saul or uh, uh, David being on the run from Saul, being an outlaw, and his coronation as king. And we maybe think that a little bit because before, in book one of Psalms, right, these Psalms are kind of individualistic, David between David and God. And after that, we see, him, we see Psalms on behalf of a group, on behalf of a nation. Okay, but my first impression of this language here, and maybe yours as well, is this is a metaphor for salvation in Jesus Christ. My second thought is an experience that every cattle producer can relate to. And that's the cow stuck in the dugout. So, depending on where you live, you have between a few inches to a few feet of good black dirt, and below that is clay. So every dugout and every pasture, pasture you see around has a clay bottom, right? That's what holds the water in. And when the dugout's full, that's fine because the cows stand around the edge and drink. But if it's dry and it hasn't rained for a while and that water gets real low, the cows go out in there. And whether driven by heat or flies or a sore foot, they liked that cool mud, right? And so they'll wallow out in there. But if the conditions are just right and they chew that clay up enough, they can walk out in there and find their footing gone. And every time they put down their foot, they just sink deeper and they rock back and forth and sink deeper and deeper. And no amount of struggle 
No amount of effort is going to get them out of there. They're stuck. And if left there, they die. If not for the one who looks after them, if not for their caretaker rescuing them, they have no hope. And we know that reality because we were once in that pit. We were stuck in the muck and the mire and no amount of good work, nothing we could do, no good deeds could save us from that. But God inclined toward us. He heard our cry and he lifted us up. He lifted us up. He provided the rescue in his son, Jesus. He filled you with the Holy Spirit and completely changed you. No longer did you have to ask, have I done enough? No longer did you have to wonder, am I good enough? Your feet stood firm on the rock of Jesus Christ. When you saw that he was the one holding your salvation in his hands, you were able to let go of your doubt. The words from your mouth sounded different. The songs you sang became songs of praise and adoration. And as the people around you witnessed the change, they longed for the same. That is the start of the Christian life. Now, take a step back. What the Holy Spirit is accomplishing here is nothing short of amazing. Because David is writing these things down, these songs about his own life and experiences, while at the same time, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he's prophesying about the greater David the one yet to come, his own descendant. And what we see in David is just a shadow, just a glimmer of the Messiah to come. The one that will be not the sinful king like David, the perfect king, the perfect prophet, the perfect high priest, the one who will be the fulfillment of the law and the prophets and the Psalms. And he's using the Holy Spirit, all of that, to speak to you and me right now. What we see next is just the natural flow of having experienced God's salvation. In verse 3, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God, right? The response is, praise. I see what you did, and I'm going to praise you. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. 
David understands the truth of what he went through. And he knows that that truth is available to other people. Now it starts to get really fun. Do you remember back when Aaron preached through Psalm 8? And he, much like David, was struck with the notion that when considering the majesty of God's creation, right? I look up at the night sky, I see the Milky Way galaxy, I see the splendor of God's celestial creation. And then I wonder, who am I that God would consider me? What, who is man that you would think of us? Right? Do you remember that? In these next few verses, David kind of says, buckle up, buttercup. I was just getting started. Verse 5, you have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer puts it this way. What matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last analysis the fact that I know God, but the larger fact that he knows me. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me. He continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me, and there is no moment when his eye is off me, and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. And it gets better. Psalm 139 I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. We know this, right? We sing this, right? My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Now follow this next thought. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. God is not constrained by the linear bounds of time as we perceive it. Past, present, future, all accessible to him simultaneously. When David says, such knowledge is too wonderful, wonderful for me, it is high, I cannot attain it. No kidding. He thought about you before you existed. He's thinking about you now. He knows your future into eternity. And now we begin to get a sense of humility. When we think back to the one who questioned God's wisdom, 
in the beginning. And in working through all that we have just seen, how God is involved in my life personally, how he thinks of me, what he has done for me, then we move into what can be the only proper response. Verse 6, in sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will. O my God, your law is within my heart. Now wait a minute. I've read Leviticus. I know that sacrifice and offering are required. So what gives? The answer lies in David's royal position. Why was David chosen to be king? Why was the crown taken away from the king before David? Saul. Back in 1 Samuel, we have the answer. And we've already talked about this. Uh, God tells Saul to go fight the Amalekites, to destroy them, to devote everything they have, people, animals, possessions, destroy it all. The judgment on them has been passed. And now it's to be carried out. So Saul... He goes and he defeats them, but he saves the very best livestock, the best sheep, and the best cattle, and he takes them back because to Saul, that would be foolish to, to just slaughter those, the very best of what they had. And when confronted by Samuel, he says, well, we just saved them to sacrifice them to the Lord. And Samuel responds with these words. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. And from that point, Saul, God rejects Saul as king. And he sends Samuel to anoint David as the new king. He says, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. So what David knows and what he's putting on the page is his way of saying, I have heard and understand that a heart of obedience is what God truly desires. It's how we understand the line about giving him an open ear. And there seems to be two camps in interpreting this verse. And the first will translate from the Hebrew because it can be translated two different ways. The first will translate it as ears you have dug for me. Meaning God has removed the barrier uh, for David's hearing and understanding of the will of God. Right? He dug it out. He took out the dirt or the wax or whatever, the earplugs. He took them out. 
So now you can hear and you can understand. And David understands that the only acceptable response is to say, I submit fully to your will. When I hear it, when I understand it, I submit to you. He says, your law is within my heart, and I delight to do your will. Okay? I'm all yours. Moses said of the law, for it is no empty word for you, but your very life. David knew that the law, the scripture, was his very life. His sacrifices were not empty gestures. He wasn't going through the motions. What is your heart attitude as you serve God? What's your heart attitude as you care for his children? Now, we don't have a bloody altar with animal sacrifices, right? But this is still applicable to us because we do have things like communion. We do have things like baptism. We do have things like serving in the church, teaching Sunday school, caring for the poor and the needy. What's your attitude as you carry out God's will? Because that's what he's looking at. He doesn't look at your bank account or the car you drive or the impression of the uh, of your rear end in your spot after 20 years of sitting in the same spot every Sunday morning. He's not looking at that. He sees your heart. Now, the other camp in the translation um, works through it this way. They see it as, ears you have pierced for me. And they interpret it back to the laws of dealing with slaves that you see in Exodus and Deuteronomy. Now, amongst the Hebrews, if you fell into uh, financial hardship, if you owed a debt to somebody and you couldn't pay it off, you could sell yourself as a slave to them. Okay? But the law said, after six years, you were set free. You had paid off your debt. Okay? Um, but at the end of those six years, if you as the slave had come to learn that your master was pretty good and had cared for you and loved you, and you also cared for and loved your master, you could willingly say, I don't want to leave. I want to stay. I want to be your slave for the rest of my life. And then what the law said was you would take that slave to the doorpost of the house and stick through his ear an awl or a sharp 
pointy metal object. You would pierce his ear. And that signified that now he was your slave for life. He was bound to you as your servant. He was a bond servant. And it's the same language that Paul uses throughout the New Testament to describe his relationship to Jesus Christ. He was chained to Christ. He could do nothing apart from submit to his will. So you see, we arrive at the same conclusion no matter which way we interpret it. I personally think that the Holy Spirit intended both ways. Now, every biblical commentator agrees that the verses in 6, 7, and 8 are messianic prophecy. And we know this because they're quoted in the New Testament, in Hebrews, about Jesus. Except there's one difference. The verse in Hebrews is quoted from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's from the, what we call the LXX or the Septuagint. The Greek translators had a problem when they came to this verse because this is a figure of speech. And how do you translate a figure of speech? Well, the Holy Spirit shows us how. In Hebrews 10, verse 5, it says this. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. See the difference, the change? But a body you have prepared for me. Prepared for what? Why did Christ need a body? Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, if I can submit and if I can present my body to God as a living sacrifice and he accepts it as my spiritual worship, my sinful body, what can Christ accomplish by submitting his perfect, sinless body to the will of God? Jesus came down from heaven, born as a human being, fully God, fully man, at the same time, for the purpose of accomplishing God's will. John 6 says, in John 6, Jesus says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Remember Jesus in Gethsemane. Not my will, but yours be done. Perfect submission to God's will. What is his will? That he would die on the cross to pay for your and my sins. That the body that was prepared for him would be the ultimate sacrifice. The fulfillment of the law. 
the old system of atonement, of sacrifice, it could never accomplish what the sinless blood of Christ did once and for all. The entire history of it, the sacrificial system, was a picture of inadequacy. It, it was in preparation and anticipation of what was to come. The perfect and eternal atonement of Jesus Christ. In Luke 24, the end of Luke, Jesus' last appearance to the disciples, he says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Do you see? It is all about him. All of it is about him. All of it is about him. All of it is about him. And so what comes next for David? The desire to tell people about it. In verses 9 and 10, David shows us the next natural response to experiencing God's salvation and then his submission to him. He tells people about it. Listen, how am I supposed to learn how to praise God for what he has done or to trust God in the difficult times of my life? Or how to pray, or how to sing to him. How to ask him for help, how to cry out to him. Unless the gray-haired people in my life were the ones to teach me. And how are these children to learn it? Unless we are the ones to teach them. Unless they hear it from me. Testimony is a vital part of the life of the church. Our God is living and active, yes? We should be sharing what that looks like in our lives with each other. The conversations of the church should be filled with what God is doing. The single mom needs to hear a story of perseverance and hope. The drug addict needs to hear a story of redemption and recovery. The sinner needs to hear a story of salvation. In hearing God's grace and mercy in other people's lives, it gives me hope for my own. From there, he goes on in verses 11 through 15 to cry out once again for deliverance. 
And I kind of say, hey, weren't you just saved? Didn't he just deliver you? In verse 12, for evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. If you know anything about David's life, you know that it was filled with tragedy and heartache. And much of it the consequences of his own sin. But what David gets right is how he responds to it. When he sins, he comes before the Lord on his knees, a penitent man, full of remorse and sorrow. When he's in trouble, he always seeks help from the Lord. And that's how it goes with our lives as well. Just because God has saved you doesn't mean that you're going to be free from pain and suffering. It doesn't mean that some of us aren't in the horrible pit right now. But it does mean we have a place to turn. We turn to the one who hears, the one who knows us, the one who heals, and the one who saves. Kent Hughes, in his book, The Disciplines of a Godly Man, writes this in discussing the importance of confession, of admitting our own sinfulness. He says, as regenerated men who are making some progress, some progress in spiritual growth, it is sinfully natural to falsely suppose we are rising above our own condition a delusion that testifies to our own depravity. We say, well, God has saved me. Can't you see how he's working in my life? Maybe I'm a little bit better than what's over here. See how David closes out this psalm. Let's see if David passes the test. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. In these words of Psalm 40, the Christian life has been modeled for us. Waiting. Submission. Responding with thanksgiving and praise. Testimony shared with one another. Humility. Obedience. This is what we sign up for. If you have not experienced it yet, it's time.
stick around after the service, talk with us. We'd be glad to introduce you to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Bethesda Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can find us online by visiting our website at www.bethesdahuron.com or you can find us on Facebook and YouTube at Bethesda Huron.